2: Millions left the workforce last year as a result of the pandemic, and a majority were women.
3: Like, I just feel like it's so hard to be a mom and a working mom at the same time, and it's literally like climbing up a mudslide. Like, we take two steps forwards and then we're
2: sliding back down. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll hear from some of those women and an expert on why this recession has affected women more than men. Plus, why high school English teacher Takeru Nagiyoshi is looking forward
1: to an end to hybrid teaching. It's like building a vehicle while driving that same vehicle at the same time on a road whose conditions and destination we're not certain about. And that vehicle, by the way, is a school bus with 100 kids. And you're not only the driver you're driving it remotely from the back of the bus.
2: And we'll remember activist and ballroom icon Jahira DiAlto.
4: She deserved an ending filled with
2: kindness and
1: tenderness,
4: and I'm really having a hard time accepting the reality that she faced.
5: It's Next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Carrie Young, an education reporter with WBUR,
2: filling in this week for Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Last year, millions of people in the U.S. left the workforce as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. A majority were women, according to federal labor data. Last spring alone, between March and April, some 3.5 million mothers living with school-aged children left active work either shifting into paid or unpaid leave, losing their job, or exiting the labor market altogether. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Dartmouth professor Kristen Smith about why women's employment was so impacted by this pandemic. But first, we're going to hear from one of those women who left the labor force. I called Amanda Hobbs in Hooksit New Hampshire.
3: Hello? Hi. Hold on, let me uh, run upstairs. Sammy, go see Abby. Go see Abby. Abby, can you go put on a show he really likes? Yes. Go see Abby. Sorry, we do uh, school in the
2: morning. No, that's okay. (laughs) I'm just glad we could squeeze this in and I won't keep you for too long. So, Amanda left her job at a car dealership after 13 years to care for her kids during the pandemic, including one child with special needs. She says her husband is the primary breadwinner, but she asked her employer if she could do her work at night after the kids were asleep, but they said no and wouldn't budge.
3: It even gets even worse. Like, I've tried to make it work so many times. I said, could I go, because I have a key, could I go in in the morning before my husband leaves? Could I go in
2: when my husband comes home? And he was like, absolutely not. Amanda says after she lost her job, she got really depressed.
3: I have a therapist and we started doing virtual calls and she actually even mentioned that she was actually really worried about my mental health. I am not meant to be a full stay at home mom. I don't know how they do it, but I need some kind of mental escape. And that was my mental escape was feeling like an adult for a couple hours a day. So yeah, it was, it was pretty bad for a while. We had to increase my medication I was snapping at my kids. I felt like I lost something that I worked so hard for because I had children.
2: Yeah, that's that's so tough.
3: Yeah, it literally made me feel like I was nothing to the company.
2: What I mean, does it frustrate you, you know, that like women have been bearing the brunt of like the responsibilities during COVID or just like have even just been the most impacted economically from this like pandemic and the recession that came with it?
3: Yes. So what, what irritates me the most is we were meant to wear so many different hats, but we lost, they gave us one hat during the pandemic. Men are the breadwinners. So it's an easy choice. It's just to drop the women's career. Like, I just feel like it's so hard to be a mom and a working mom at the same time. And it's literally like climbing up a mudslide. Like we take two steps forwards and then we're sliding back down. So I just find that really irritating. And I and I'm very grateful that my 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 husband makes enough money.
2: Amanda recently rejoined the workforce part-time working for a real estate agent. This time her hours are much more flexible. And there are others like Amanda. According to the Pew Research Center, 2.4 million women totally left the workforce from February 2020 to February 2021. That's compared to 1.8 million men who left in that same time period. And joining us now to discuss this trend is Kristen Smith. She's a visiting associate professor of sociology at Dartmouth College who researches gender inequality, labor markets, and employment. Kristen, welcome to Next. Thank you very much, Gary. So we heard from Amanda earlier in the segment about the reasons why she was forced to leave her job. But what does the research or data say about why so many other women left the workforce during the pandemic? Are there a lot of other reasons? You know, there's there's two things
6: that are going on with women's employment in this pandemic. On the one hand, we have jobs that women are employed in that are being called upon more. So the essential worker jobs that we've heard so much about, those are in health, for example, and teachers, grocery stores. But then at the same time, simultaneously, we have jobs in leisure and hospitality, that are also female-dominated, those jobs are being curtailed, they're being cut. So we have sort of this two-pronged two two-prong approach for women and what that means for them. So if you carry that forward, some women are leaving the labor force, but some women are becoming unemployed.
2: Can you explain the difference between leaving the labor force and unemployment? Um, you
6: may recall in September, there were 860,000 women who left the labor force, those women are sort of like Amanda who couldn't make it work between being a mother and working. And so we've had a lot of women leave the labor force completely. Then we also have unemployment. So unemployment is when you lose your job and you continue looking for a job. So our unemployment numbers are coming down, right? So we, we have more people entering the labor force, but we still have a number of, of women and men as well who are out of the labor force who have decided that they just can't manage the tasks of and the responsibility of having children at home and working. So a great number of those who left the labor force in September were mothers.
2: And it seems like it's not just a gender disparity right now. According to the Pew Research Center, it looks like many of the women who have left the workforce are Hispanic or Black. Do you know why that is?
6: Yeah, so we have a very segregated labor force. Occupations are segregated by sex. They're also segregated by race. And a lot of women are holding those posts that are in service, either through retail or food service or waitresses or hospitality. And a disproportionate number of women of color are holding those positions as well. So it seems like this is often the case in pandemics where minorities um, and women are often uh, lose their jobs first, and then they're the last to, to re-enter as
2: well. So one of the women I also spoke with for this segment, her name was uh, Marianne Silva from Lynn, Massachusetts, and she was a banquet server at the Ritz-Carlton. She's also a caregiver for her elderly mother. It all seemed to get
7: more stressful, obviously. when When COVID hit, everything just collapsed. And I'm sure some of my stress fell over to my mom. And I was really worried about her health and my health. And paying the mortgage and the car payment and
2: all of those bills that had to be paid. So it was a very stressful time. So, as I mentioned, Marianne worked at a hotel. Can you talk a little bit about what the impact the closures of the hospitality industries have had on women in the workforce?
6: When in April, when many of the states closed down, people didn't go out to restaurants, they didn't go to stay vacation, for example. So hotels, hospitality, restaurants were all hit really, really hard. And I think it's been a tough road for them. So I've been looking at some of the New Hampshire numbers, and we do see that the the jobs are coming back, but they're coming back slowly. And so it's been a tough and long road for workers in those categories.
2: So I also talked to Katie Ring, who is a commercial photographer in Salem, Massachusetts. And she told me about the challenge of being a working mom during the pandemic.
8: As working moms, many of us had some kind of a hard transition into figuring out motherhood and our job, and most of us had to revisit that. And any of us who had a particularly difficult experience um, when becoming working moms, any mom who didn't work for a great company with great family leave and a seamless transition here you know, I think a lot of women I talked to just had been feeling this real, like trigger back to why is this so hard again, you know, my family had worked hard to figure out how my career was going to go. And I didn't anticipate having to renegotiate that again, having that blow up again. And that was, you know, pretty, pretty upsetting for you know myself and a lot of other women to to feel like, you know, we, I thought we'd made progress, all the things we thought we'd done to have more gender equity, especially in caregiving. A lot of that just felt like it was blown up by the pandemic.
2: Again, that was Katie Ring in Salem, Massachusetts. And Katie mentioned progress in gender equity. Have we seen a drastic slide back that will be hard to recover, do you think?
6: Yeah, that's such a good point that she's bringing up, how hard women have worked To maintain their place in the labor force and have families. You know, the United States is not a country that really values caregivers. Uh, We don't have a paid family and medical leave federal program. We don't have. Federal paid sick leave program. Our child care supports are minimal at best. So we're not really valuing care and women's role as caregivers in the United States. And so this sliding back, you know, we didn't have the supports in place prior to this pandemic and this recession. And one of the things that this recession has done repeatedly is sort of shine a spotlight on all of the inequalities that we have in different systems. So in the care infrastructure system, we're seeing, I mean, Katie's example and the other examples are really showing everything sort of crumbles when you have a negative event like a pandemic. We are sliding back and losing ground. Reentry after time away from the labor force has been notoriously difficult. Many women, when they reenter, don't enter at the same level that they left in terms of pay or occupational prestige or hours worked. We have a choice to make as a society. Where What do we want to value?
2: Kristen Smith is a visiting associate professor of sociology at Dartmouth College, who focuses on gender inequality, labor markets, and employment. Kristen, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. As we just heard, school disruptions during the pandemic have been tough on families across New England. But like many crises, it's also created an opportunity to rethink education. For many Republicans in New Hampshire, that means expanding school choice. New Hampshire Public Radio's Sarah Gibson has this story on a bill that would create one of the most sweeping programs in the country for families who opt out of public school.
7: Maria Brown lives with her family in Manchester. The license plate on her car reads nonstop. And if you spend a few minutes with her, it kind of fits.
3: I am mom or a monkey
7: wrangler. Yeah, because I got five of them. (laughs) Two of those children were enrolled in the public middle and high school when the pandemic hit. And Maria says the Manchester School District's decision to stay remote and hybrid last fall was a disaster for her high schooler, Savannah.
3: So BC, before COVID, she was high on her roll. But when COVID hit, the whole electronic piece is almost
9: where they lost her.
7: Here's Savannah.
10: I couldn't keep up with all of everything because there's new papers every single day.
7: Savannah was stressed, failing her classes. So she and her sister left the district and are now homeschooling. It's a mix of work online and with textbooks, occasional cooking lessons with mom, and some unexpected assignments.
10: I was forced to go gardening at my aunt's house for homeschooling purposes. I went over for help with history and they're like, you're going gardening. I'm like, Thanks.
7: The Browns are part of a trend of families leaving public schools for private or homeschool during the pandemic. In the Browns' case, grievances with the schools had built up for years. They talked about stress from bullying and disagreeing with a policy allowing students to use the bathroom that aligns with their gender identity. Remote learning, they say, was the final straw. And this kind of frustration has helped reignite a debate in the statehouse over whether families who don't use the public school system should get taxpayer dollars to pay for the educational program of their choice.
1: Every child learns differently and different environments suit some kids better than others.
7: That's Republican Senator Jeb Bradley, a longtime supporter of school choice. He's now pushing a bill to establish an education savings account. And with his party in control of the state house, it's likely to become law. Here's how it works. Normally, the state sends around $4,600 per pupil to public schools. Under this program, families can use that money to pay for tuition at private or religious schools, online programs, or other educational services. It's targeted at low and moderate income families. For example, if a family of four makes under $79,000, they qualify. Senator Bradley says he doesn't expect more than 2% of students in the state to enroll. I
1: think it will be a limited experiment. We'll see how it works, as we have a lot of other initiatives.
7: There are a handful of similar programs across the country, and they tend to grow over time. Critics say they take money from cash-strapped school districts and place kids in programs with little oversight. Maxine Mosley is the vice president of the Manchester Teachers Union.
1: Parents do have the right to have their students educated in the way that they want. They don't always have the right to use public money designated for public education to go into their private coffers.
7: Mosley and others say this kind of program encourages people to leave public schools like the one where she teaches. At the Manchester District office, I meet up with Superintendent John Goldhart. I tell him about the Brown family and others I've met who are giving up on public schools.
4: I would say I understand their frustration because I've been frustrated. Uh, I wanted all of our students to be in school all year. But it wasn't possible.
7: He says when it comes to school choice, he's less concerned about the financial fallout. But he's philosophically opposed to public funds going to private programs. He says that money belongs to the public school system.
4: It is the great equalizer. I strongly believe in that. And if you set up a system that ever is uh, hurting that great equalizer and giving funding to a a group of folks who aren't as accountable, it's concerning to me.
7: Maria Brown says the public funds belong to students, not the district.
4: There's
3: clearly things that happened Why we pulled them out. Schools should have been open, if not partially, then full-time. They let the kids already fall through the cracks.
7: She says when life returns to normal, her kids might take some classes at the public school, but they won't re-enroll. It's likely that by next fall, education savings accounts will be law, and eventually her family could apply. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sarah Gibson.
2: This week marks the 250th episode of Next!, which is all about New England. And so we want to hear from you. What do you love most about living in or visiting New England? And what makes our region really unique? Leave a comment at eight six zero two seven five seventy five ninety five. Again, that's eight six zero two seven five seventy five ninety five. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. And thanks. Coming up, a teacher talks about his experience with hybrid learning and his hopes for the next school year. Plus, as more rural Vermont schools close for good, we'll hear about the complicated art of planning school bus routes. You're listening to Next.
5: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Carrie Young, in for
2: Morgan Springer. As the school year comes to a close, we want to reflect on this past year and specifically the impact the COVID-19 pandemic has had on teachers and the way they teach. For some teachers, it's been in-person learning or online learning all the way. Others have had to navigate a hybrid of the two, juggling students in the classroom and online. Today, we're joined by an English teacher to hear about his experience teaching during this past year and what he's learned from it. Takero Nagayoshi is a teacher at New Bedford High School in Massachusetts, and he was the state's Teacher of the Year in 2020. Takero, welcome to Next.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
2: So I want to start by understanding what teaching looks like for you right now. Can you explain how much of your class is there in person and how much are joining online still?
1: Yeah, it has been a journey. We have been teaching concurrently since September, meaning that I am not only teaching virtually to a screen, but I also have students in front of me in person. And so it's kind of like traversing two time and space dimensions. Currently, I have about half of my students still virtually, and then the other half in person. But slowly over the course of the months, we've been getting more kids coming back in person.
2: That's interesting.
1: Mm.
2: I'm curious, though, too. So like when you're in the classroom, can you paint the picture like, What does it look like? Or are you always standing in front of the computer screen? I know you have mentioned, like, you have a selfie stick to, like, hold your phone for things. (laughs) Um, So can you tell me, yeah, what, if I'm looking at it, can you paint that picture for me?
1: Yeah. So imagine me being in the corner of my classroom with my desk set up looking like a producer's desk. I have multiple screens and lights and just like how you set the selfie stick set up as well. And my kids are also logging in uh, to the virtual classroom space uh, on their own laptops while they're in person. And so it kind of feels dystopian where kids would come into my classroom in person, but instead of feeling the benefits of an in-person class and collaborating with each other and looking at each other in the eyes, they're actually looking at me through the screen in front of them. That way we can all sort of be together in person and virtual. And so... It's not the best, um, but it's also the second to best thing that we can have at the moment.
2: Right. Massachusetts education leaders have said that the state won't do a hybrid model next year, but other states haven't quite made that decision yet. As we know, that can always change. Plans have changed during COVID quite a bit. But, you know, if it did and it meant that you had to continue doing some kind of hybrid what would it mean for you as a teacher if you had to continue in this model that is so just logistically challenging?
1: Yeah, I think I just had stress hives just hearing and thinking about the possibility of hybrid continuing on. I mean, if it happens, it happens and I'll have to do it, right? but uh, that is not what I think good learning is. And, And this year has felt like being on overdrive all day, every day. And a lot of folks ask me what like metaphor I might use to describe teaching this year. But it's like building a vehicle while driving that same vehicle at the same time on a road whose conditions and destination we're not certain about. And that vehicle, by the way, is a school bus with 100 kids. And you're not only the driver, but you're driving it remotely from the back of the bus. And so that is where I am mentally, emotionally at right now. I can endure it for the rest of the month or until this school year ends. But I don't think this is something I want to do next year for sure.
2: <laughs> I can totally understand that. And that's, a, that's quite a vivid mental picture there. <laughs> you know, I want to I wanna switch gears a little bit here and talk about what you as a teacher have learned during this past year. Like, how has COVID-19 changed the way that you teach students or what you know lands well with students?
1: Yeah, I think I've thought a lot about what success means and should mean. And for so long, success, I think, in our schools have always meant about academic achievements, right? Not necessarily about our students' personal development and growth. And, you know, as an AP, advanced academic teacher, uh, I'm proud and I've always been proud of the exam results I was able to get with my students. Uh, And so I think I was guilty of that success as being defined by academics trap as well. And, and, and this year I really thought, well, at what cost uh, is that definition of success, this traditional metric of success worth chasing, especially in a school year when the parameters, right, that have allowed us for the success or, or lack of success to happen have shifted so much. And especially at first, I think uh, I was on this constant grind to prove myself that like I'm not gonna let the pandemic affect me. I put a lot of that pressure on myself. And, and there was this desire to overcompensate, not just, you know, as a teacher, um, but also as a professional. Uh, and so, you know, at my worst, I was at school until nine o'clock, uh, being part of different working groups and committees and fellowships and advisory boards and task forces and, you know, teaching a new grad school course. And I got in a car accident in February. And, and you know, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't directly tied um, to the work that I was doing, but it happened on a day that I stayed at school until nine o'clock. And it made me realize how I had to slow down and reevaluate the things in my life and how I've been also guilty of thinking about my own success as a teacher as tied to these external factors, right? And I think the problem with that mindset has always been that when these circumstances change, the fact that we're in a global pandemic, we're always going to feel like we're playing catch up. And it's hard to get ourselves out out of, you know, that hamster wheel, so to speak. And so, you know, after the car accident, um, I was really heartened by the outpouring of love and support that my students were able to, you know, send and reach out to me. And up until that point, a lot of my kids were just a sea of black boxes and names. And for the first time, I was hearing them reach out personally and checking in on me. And, and that's kind of what success started to look like for me. And that's what I started to lean in on. It's how I show up for my students and how they show up for me. It's about the relationships that we're able to cultivate with each other, even in spite of the pandemic. It's those small moments of compassion and grace that we're able to give each other. And, and that doesn't always have to be just academic stuff.
2: So we're almost to summer. Do you know what the next school year is going to look like for you? Or how much do you know? Maybe that's the way to ask.
1: Oh, very little. I don't know anything. I, 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 I really don't. I wish I did. I can tell you what I don't want. And, and I don't want this hybrid virtual situation to continue on. And I've learned a lot about like being a hybrid teacher and Uh, using a lot of these tech platforms and I'm grateful for that. I think there's a lot of things I'm going to bring back, but it's not the reason why teachers become teachers. You know, we become teachers because we love being with people. We love helping people in person and and, and feeling our impact and and feeling the impact of our relationship, right? And so, no, I I don't know, but I will definitely be crying if it turns out that this hybrid model is going to continue.
2: Takero Nagayoshi is an English teacher at New Bedford High School and was Massachusetts Teacher of the Year for 2020. Takeru, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
2: As school districts around northern New England become larger and more centralized, some kids are going to feel the impact in how they get to and from school. Vermont Public Radio's Anna Van Dyne reports. Every
10: weekday, kids all over Vermont get on the bus to go to school.
2: What the bus does is...
11: He goes by our house, and because there's more kids up, and then he swoop around, and then
10: he'd come back to my house. This is Damien. He's 11. The bus picks him up around 7.10 in the morning.
11: There's been one time where I missed the bus because it left at 7.04. It went by my house at 7.04. And then I realized when I was walking down that I saw it go to the school. What
10: did you do? Well, I just walked back up home. My mom wasn't happy that I missed the bus because she had a work day. Damien's a fifth grader at Castleton Elementary School. Castleton is in the Slate Valley Unified School District, which straddles Addison and Rutland counties. Slate Valley merged in 2019 under Act 46, Vermont's school consolidation law that's resulted in about 40 mergers. As school districts become larger and more centralized, people like Slate Valley Superintendent Brooke Olson Farrell have to spend more time figuring out how to get kids to school.
7: You know, our our district is 50 square miles, so that's a lot of road to cover, and we have a lot of back roads, um, a lot of dirt roads.
10: Olson Farrell says some students in the district have bus rides of up to an hour and a half. Damien lives pretty close to school, just about four miles. But there's a plan on the table that would close his future middle school, and in two years, it's likely he'll have to go to seventh grade in the next town over. His bus ride will more than double. What do kids do on the bus?
11: Well, there's a bunch of people that just watch videos on their phones or tell jokes. What do you do? I just sit there and if whenever I'd bring
10: my Nintendo Switch, because sometimes I would, I'd play Minecraft. The state doesn't track how many kids like Damien ride the bus or how long their rides are. But rides of an hour or more aren't unheard of in a state where the majority of school districts are rural. And when community schools close, bus rides for some kids get longer. Last year was Slate Valley's first year as a merged district. They've reduced the number of bus runs, but Superintendent Olson Farrell says there will likely be more changes in the future. There's a lot to think about, from road conditions and terrain to the length of rides.
7: Making sure that we don't have excessively long bus routes, especially when we have, you know, little kindergartners or first graders stuck on the bus for an in you know, a a huge
10: amount of time. This is the kind of thing that worries Barbara Wilson. She was just elected to the school board in the Addison Central School District. The district consists of seven towns that came together in 2016 under Act 46. There are some school closures planned, which would increase travel for some students. Wilson is concerned that the impacts of this wouldn't be felt equally. For example, she says some parents might drive their kids to school to avoid the longer bus ride. But a kid whose parents work a lot? They may not have that luxury, where they have a parent that is able to take them to
7: school, let alone if it's further away.
10: There's plenty of anecdotal evidence that suggests a longer distance between home and school impacts families, from limiting parents' ability to participate in school activities to negatively affecting students' health and academic performance. According to the ACSD superintendent, they're trying to keep ride times under an hour. But it goes beyond logistics. Rural districts face high transportation costs. Buses need fuel to drive long distances, and all those miles on Vermont roads increase maintenance costs and decrease vehicle lifespans. Making matters worse, the state has relatively few bus companies and a shortage of drivers. And as school districts consolidate, they have to contend with larger swaths of Vermont's unique landscape— Cheryl Morse is a geographer at the University of Vermont. On a map, it looks like two places are relatively close to each other and you should be able to get from here to there, but really you have to go up and
0: around and over to get
6: between those two locations.
10: Even within a single town, says Morris, it might be hard to get from one end to the other because of a river valley or a hill. For example, the town of Ripton doesn't feel isolated, but in some ways it can be. Lori Cox is chair of the Ripton Select Board and an advocate for a plan to withdraw Ripton's elementary school from its merged district in order to keep the school open. She says one of the reasons some residents want a school in town is because sending kids elsewhere would mean a bus ride on Route 125. It's a road Cox has seen closed about a dozen times due to accidents on the hairpin turns, flooding, and mudslides in the spring or other damage.
5: It's probably the biggest reason why people don't, who have young kids don't feel like it's all that great of an idea to just stick them on the bus.
10: The district has been bussing older students on the road for years and says it shouldn't be a problem. In southern Vermont, the town of Reedsboro faced its own transportation challenge in 2019 when they had to send six middle schoolers to neighboring Halifax. A bus was too expensive, so the district reimbursed parents $300 a month to drive students to school a dozen miles over a windy mountain road. That's according to school board chair Homer Sumner.
4: It, it's not a cow path, but it's not a 91.
10: On the other hand, there are places where it seems to work out, like in the White River Valley Supervisory Union. There's a plan where, starting in the fall of 2022, K-4 through students will go to Tunbridge and 5-8 through students will go to Chelsea. Those towns are about 10 minutes apart on a paved, uneventful road. UVM geographer Cheryl Morse's research focuses on rural communities and the connection between people and the environment. She says that Vermont, like most colonized places, has arbitrary political boundaries drawn upon the landscape. Those are our counties, our towns and our school districts. You know, we have our human geography in the way that we try to create communities and try to create efficiencies and try to create networks. Um, But the landscape uh, is is in place as it is. As districts change, the landscape doesn't. Distances are as far as they ever were, and mountains can't be moved. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Anna Van Dyne.
2: Coming up, we'll remember activist and ballroom icon Jahaira DiAlto. It's next.
5: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay,
2: we're back. I'm Carrie Young, in for Morgan Springer. Boston lost an important trans activist who was killed in her home in early May. Jahaira Dialto was also an advocate for survivors of domestic violence and an icon in the city's ballroom scene. WBUR's Cristela Guerra has more.
6: Tag team performance! Two! Two hundred, two hundred dollars tag team performance. Anybody
0: walking? Ten! (laughs) Jahaira DiAlto was unapologetic. She walked in her truth.
4: In the ballroom scene, I am known as legendary Jahaira Balenciaga.
0: The category she was known for is called realness. On that catwalk, friends say she ascended. Queen for a night to vamp and strut for the house of Balenciaga.
4: This is the icon, Shihira. Yes, 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 yes Will this all day? Will this all day, every day?
0: D'Alto, who 42, taught her best friend about ballroom. Nolan Tessis holds on to those lessons, how today's knots are tomorrow's legends. So be kind to everyone.
4: And that's the beauty of the ballroom scene is that, like, For people who had nothing, who had no hope, it allows you a space to imagine a different possibility.
0: They spent late nights talking. He tattooed her name on his wrist. She tattooed his name on her neck.
4: I don't know how I'm going to live with this. Just the idea that the major moments, my milestones, you know, like, I can't call her anymore. She deserved an ending filled with kindness and tenderness. And I'm really having a hard time accepting the reality that she faced.
0: A proud trans woman, DiAlto survived domestic violence and became an advocate, recognized by the state for her work. Above all else, she was a mother. She embraced the queer children cast out by their biological families. She gave them a place. How many kids would you say she had? Oh, honey.
4: <laughs> oh, mother Hubbard is what you can call my mother. I cannot put a number on how many kids does she had, And that is just me, honestly speaking.
0: Athena Vaughn was one of those kids. She lived with Dialto for more than a decade, after her family rejected her when she came out as trans. Dialto was there to catch her, a mother in every way. She bought Vaughn her very first pair of jeans when she was a teen.
4: She used to look at me and be like, sweetie, you need to buy you some jeans. And I used to be like, you know, we, you know holy women, we're not supposed to wear jeans, mommy.
0: <laughs> Vaughn says her mother was one of the smartest people she'd ever met a woman who loved rare steaks and spending time with family. She could buy a book one day and finish it the next. D'Alto loved Oprah, travel, and water.
4: If it was thundering rain outside, she would take off her shoes and put on just a little jump shirt or whatever and some shorts, and she would take her hair out of a bun and she would just run outside into the rain and stand there for a few seconds and then she would walk back into the house.
0: Vaughn says her mother was the kind of person who would meet you and two hours later, love you.
4: For her and the people she's touched, it's just what that is. Mother, the essence of giving hope, the essence of guiding, the essence of uplifting and just uh, having someone to show you the unconditional love that your biological family was no longer giving because they were not supporting your lifestyle.
0: She loved ferociously. The man, who police allege fatally stabbed Yalto had been staying with her. She never turned anyone away. Now her community intends to see her off. A ball, a celebration. Her mission was to empower trans women. Tessis says this charge remains.
4: What do we do now? What do we do that we haven't done before? What do we sacrifice that we haven't sacrificed before? What's the new, what's the next? And I think that she would want this moment to be a catalyst for
11: change.
0: I met the ALTA last fall at a ball inside the Museum of Science. She told me she wanted to see her sisters step into their light, unapologetic, always, and forever.
4: I want to see more of us. I want to see those who have receded into the shadows by virtue of things like passing privilege and a desire to just get by, understand that uh, standing in the sun is the only way that we're going to see quantifiable change.
0: For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Cristela Guerra.
2: Rhode Island saw a surge in calls to domestic violence helplines in 2020 as people were directed to stay home to prevent the spread of COVID-19. But even with much of the state reopening, domestic violence advocates say the need for support services still remains high. The Public's Radio's Antonia Ayers-Brown reports.
9: Hello, Women's Resource Center. need to speak in. How can I help you?
2: Neda
12: DeJesus is the residential director at a domestic violence prevention agency in Newport.
4: Is this due to domestic violence? Are you in a safe place to talk to me right now?
12: She runs the Women's Resource Center's 12-bed emergency shelter, as well as its transitional housing program, where women and their children can stay for up to two years while they look for a safe, permanent home. She says that even before COVID, the center couldn't keep up with requests for housing.
4: There's never enough beds. Whether we have a high increase in calls or a decrease in calls, we can't serve everyone because we just don't have enough beds.
12: Since the pandemic began, that's only gotten worse. Last summer, the Women's Resource Center rented additional space to double the emergency shelter's capacity. With those extra beds, the center managed to shelter twice as many people last year as it did the year before. But Executive Director Jessica Walsh says demand for housing still far exceeded and even now, continues to exceed, what her agency can provide. Suddenly,
13: having to be home 24-7 with a person who was abusive uh, became very untenable and very unsafe. And so the request for shelter uh, just skyrocketed.
12: That was true statewide and nationally. The Rhode Island Coalition Against Domestic Violence, which is made up of 10 agencies, including the Women's Resource Center, kept its 24-hour helpline open throughout the pandemic. Some months, calls increased by up to 90% compared to the year before. And advocates say there's also been an increase in how much support those survivors need. While the demand for shelter has increased at agencies like the Women's Resource Center, so have requests for other services, like counseling, support groups, and help with public benefits.
13: All of a sudden, it felt like every client had... An acute need because suddenly all of the systems that they were using to um, provide for their families to survive, to make ends meet, had different rules. Nobody knew how to access the supports that
12: they needed. Walsh says clients who previously would have needed only counseling or legal assistance were also looking for help with things like childcare, unemployment benefits, transportation, or even getting basic grocery items. Walsh and her staff have also seen new trends in the kind of abuse they're responding to. People often think of domestic violence as just physical violence, but it can also include
13: financial, emotional, or psychological abuse. Financial abuse is one of the big reasons why folks who are experiencing domestic violence either stay or return to um, an unhealthy situation, um, because it's, it's hard, it's often near to impossible um, to be financially independent.
12: Walsh says that's been especially true this year, as many people lost their jobs. In more than one instance, there have been cases of abusers invoking COVID-19 as a reason to monitor their partner's every move or ignore a survivor's visitation rights with their children. And many victims are removed from their usual support systems or networks of friends, which can make it harder to access help. Walsh says this isolation and hypervigilance has also been difficult for many survivors who are no longer with an abusive partner,
13: and even years into their journey to healing. Those experiences of the pandemic um, really mimicked and mirrored some of the experiences of being in an abusive relationship, and so even folks who were no longer in those relationships were feeling triggered and needed our support.
12: Advocates say these emotional scars of the past year won't suddenly disappear, even as routines go back to normal. Tanya Harris, the executive director of the Rhode Island Coalition Against Domestic Violence.
5: The victim is um, now recovering from a pandemic. And also recovering um, from being isolated, um, from intimidation, from uh, possible uh, abuse, um, from children witnessing, uh, which is another layer. And so these are all things that victims are going to work through and will need to work through in addition to um, everything else that will be happening, such as trying to find a job again.
12: On the ground in Newport, Walsh says there are likely some people who didn't feel free to call for help over the past year, but may need support moving forward.
13: So as much as we were seeing um, an increase in calls, I still believe we saw the tip of the iceberg of what was happening for folks.
12: And Walsh says her team will be ready, like they have been throughout the pandemic, to help survivors begin healing. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Antonia Ayers-Brown.
2: If you think you or someone you know may be experiencing domestic violence, help is available call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-7233. At Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology, the creators of a new online exhibition are trying to pull back the curtain on some of the forgotten women of the museum's history, including one underappreciated arachnophile, WBUR's Andrea Shea got the story about this pioneering spider expert from the show's curator.
11: Reed Gotchberg was digging through the archives at Harvard Zoology Museum when she stumbled on some striking information buried in some old annual reports. ¶¶
9: What I noticed is that starting in 1869, there's this note that talks about how they've started hiring women as assistants and how they've found them to be very good workers. One of
11: them was Elizabeth Bangs Bryant. So when Bryant first started
9: working at the museum, she actually worked as a volunteer on a part-time basis.
11: That was in 1898.
9: And she only began to receive a salary for her work in the 1930s.
11: You might get creeped out by the critters Bryant worked with every day. She focused on spiders. Gotchberg acknowledges the eek factor that comes with the job title Spider Curator. She studies 19th century American culture along with the history of museums and says Harvard had a ton of specimens, fossils, birds, shells, and spiders that needed to be cataloged and preserved. Now, Gotchberg is highlighting that hidden labor in the online exhibition, Women of the Museum, Behind the Scenes at the Museum of Comparative Zoology. They
9: were first hired as assistants and secretaries and sometimes as librarians but you know it took a few decades before women started to be appointed at the level of assistant curator
11: before being hired as assistant spider curator elizabeth bangs bryant had been fearlessly building her own collection of eight-legged specimens she found them on excursions in new england and the caribbean two spiders are even named after her the bryantella and the bryantina While she didn't complete her degree at Radcliffe, Gotchberg says Bryant pursued her passion with mentors, including the head spider curator at the Zoology Museum.
9: One of the challenges with Bryant in terms of just the available source material that I've had so far is that mostly I've been working with her professional correspondence, although I should say the fact that so many of her letters are in the archives is actually quite notable.
11: Bryant was one of a few women at the museum whose name appears alongside her work. Jars she labeled by hand are still in the collection. And Bryant was able to publish her research. Gotchberg says aspiring arachnologists wrote to her for advice. They would ask for her help in
9: identifying um, spiders that they had collected, and so they often would be sending these specimens to the museum.
11: Bryant added any duplicates to Harvard's collection. In her time, women were usually excluded from scientific careers, which wasn't lost on Bryant's female correspondents.
9: They sometimes will joke with her talking about men in the field and their dismissal of of women who are working on spiders.
11: Gotchberg says Bryant's letters offer glimpses of her as a mentor to younger women, but sometimes she admitted to them that refilling vials to preserve the tiny, hairy creatures was mundane.
9: She found it often to be very tedious, but she also recognized how important that was in terms of maintaining these collections and making them available to people in the future.
11: When Bryant died in 1953, she left her personal spider collection to the museum. Now, Gotchberg hopes the underappreciated arachnologist's story, along with those of the other pioneering women in the exhibition, will help people think differently about their legacy, caring for Harvard's trove of shells, fossils, birds, dinosaur bones, and spiders. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Andrea Shea.
2: We'll have a link to the online exhibition, Women of the Museum, on our website, NENC.news. Well, that's our 250th show. I'm Carrie Young from WBUR. You can find Next wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. This episode was produced by Lily Tyson and Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know what you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and The Publix Radio.